Hello and welcome to the Christmas is Cancelled edition of Romaniacs. I'm Dorian Linsky and joining me this week are two people looking forward to a nice night in for the next six months. Ros Taylor is editor of the LSE's COVID-19 blog. Hi Ros. Hello Dorian. Uh, Van Morrison's new anti-lockdown song accuses Imperial College scientists of making up crooked facts. Noel Gallagher is uh, a born-again anti-masker. Ian Brown is warning of the pandemic, planned, designed and executed to make us digital slaves. Um, is this what happens when gig revenue dries up and, and you just <laughs> and they just they just don't have enough to do? Um, yeah, well, I, I I mean, as far as I'm concerned, you know, pop music. I mean, you can correct me here, Doreen, because you're more of an expert on pop music. I think we can all agree <laughs> than I am. But it is generally about emotion, isn't it? It's not generally about logically thought out political positions. And I think that's what we're seeing in this case. I think... I, I, I mean, I was thinking, you know, is it possible to do a sort of pro-lockdown song, you know, some sort of ode to the joys of the rule of six? And, you know, it's not what we're looking for, really, is it, from our pop stars? We're looking for rage. We're looking for anger. We're looking for frustration. And that is what Mr. Morrison here is is ultimately giving us. It's a shame about the pandemic rubbish and that he's, you know, they're buying into that sort of crap. But, you know, if, if pop stars start spouting an official government line, um, then then I, I begin to worry. I can't wait until your children get into Rage Against the Machine, Roz, and you're just like, well, I mean, look, it's fine to say, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me, but it's not a very logically thought out proposition. And I can't... <laughs> Fortunately, the main interest is currently in Taylor Swift. So you know, I'm, I'm not having too much, um, too much kickback yet. <laughs> Well, when, when people uh, ask me, uh, you know, talk about protest songs, and they go, why are most musicians left wing? And I said, well, fundamentally, they're, they're, they're sort of almost all libertarian. You know, they're not very into, like, let's build more houses. They're, they're just sort of like, leave me alone. <laughs> and it just so happens that generally they want to be left alone by right wing governments. Yeah. But, but yes, you're right. It's very hard uh, to do a... Do what they tell you. <laughs> pro, pro lockdown. Yes, please. I'll do what they tell me. Ian Dunt is editor of politics.co.uk and he's currently virtually touring his new book, How to Be a Liberal. Hello, Ian. Hey. Johnson says that unless things improve, new regulations could last as long as, as six months. Now, I, I sometimes quite fondly remember classic lockdown or, or lockdown gold. With sweating to Joe Wicks, making your own bread, <laughs> clapping for the NHS, <laughs> swerving people on the pavement. That's, uh, that's lockdown gold. Um, but <laughs> how do you think this will be, this will be different? I mean, I think that they will do their absolute utmost to try and keep um, sort of pubs and restaurants open. I don't know how long that's going to be possible because there are already you know, lots of murmurs that people are pushing for a ban on mixing of households. Um, and... Look, the smart money at the moment is that that's going to come in at some point. Um, I wonder what it's going to be like for us as people, because at least the first the first time I had that anxiety of this is fucking terrifying. And it felt like a zombie movie. You know, you just had that thing of like, this is this is like that bit in the disaster movie I see. And now it's actually happening outside of my door. So it was this mixture of boredom and anxiety. Now, because we've been there before. It's sort of almost weirdly more depressing because it's lost its sense of newness. You know, now it's just like, oh fuck, mm. here we fucking go again. And so I don't, like, I don't know about other people. I'm, I've never been great with winter anyway. Like, I, I don't have that whole like, oh, I love cappuccinos and big coats. It's like, no, fuck that. Just give me sunshine. But and so I, I don't really like it when the nights draw in. But this year, when the nights are drawing in, I am finding it especially depressing because it is just like. 
oh fuck here it comes like the longest six months of our lives is just starting up and unlike last time where the weather was already starting to improve it's going to be cold it's going to be dark it's going to be lonely and i have many other positive messages to give you over the course of this podcast (laughs) (laughs) sorry i was trying to find a positive at the end of that i thought no i can't i can't find one Well, we're going to miss Michael Gove's announcement because we're recording in the morning. So we're going to miss the announcement this afternoon uh, about the reality of trade and customs after January. There's already been a a letter uh, promising queues of 7,000 lorries very much along the the vein of Operation Yellowhammer, uh, which was Brexit gold from two years ago. (laughs) So all, all the old hits are being played. Uh, What are you expecting Gove to say? Uh, Well, he's going to, it seems like they're finally starting to acknowledge all the things which were once Project Fear and we were all told would be undone because they were illegal under WTO law or because they wouldn't be necessary because of the hi-fi, sorry, a big part on the sci-fi sort of high-tech solutions they were going to introduce. Turns out all of those things were true. Um, And it seems like this is the first moment that they're actually going to start engaging in that reality. And I think this is probably on purpose because if you look at most of the messaging they put out to businesses, it's has has been it's hard for them to communicate the sense of urgency to it because it's all dressed up in this narrative of oh these great golden opportunities you know take advantage of brexit here comes our great new moment whereas in fact the message that you need to give to to businesses is you really need to sort this shit out immediately the problem is there's not much they can do to sort it out because the it systems just aren't online right now i mean we have we think that there's about 10 different sort of systems being put in place for the border i mean one of them it was being used, it was essentially, you know, allowing people to put their stuff up into a portal and be given pre-authorization to approach, um, to approach Calais Dover. Um, oh, I beg your pardon, Dover Calais. Now, that still isn't online. We think it'll be online later, but people need time to train to use these systems in the first place. And they use logistics from lots of different elements, from, you know, from the port authorities, from the exporter, from the importer, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, given that right now our experience of government IT projects, I know this is an old joke, but it's a rather crucial one at the moment, is not particularly fantastic. And the things with Galileo, for instance, didn't work, or that you might want to look at track and trace and see how well that's worked. The notion that this extremely complicated logistics infrastructure is going to be in place in, what, 99 days seems rather fanciful, and it seems that the government are now preparing to, to lay the ground for that. Although I should add to that, they're not laying the ground for it in a realistic way. I mean, George Eustace, Deferent Secretary, is fucking up in a select committee going, oh, well, of course, we've got everything sorted on our end. But the EU, if they make a pig's ear of it, then there's nothing we can do to protect about that. It's like, you fucking shameless bastard. Is that genuinely the message? So that gives you some sense of the blame game that they're already laying the traps for now. Our guest this week is the Alliance Party of Northern Ireland MP for North Down, Stephen Farry. He's represented the constituency in the Assembly for 12 years, was a strong supporter of a people's vote as deputy leader of the party. His maiden speech was the first in over 100 years to begin in a language other than English. Uh, so <laughs> I will continue my habit of mangling <laughs> languages other than English and say, foilcher, Stephen yes, Farry. Um, thank you very much. Let me just start off by uh, closing the loop by uh, referencing Van Morrison and uh, <laughs> stressing that he's actually a constituent of mine. <laughs> so so uh, funny how things work out. He is a re- um, renowned for his rudeness um, and his lack of approachability. People um, 
tend to uh, stay well, well clear of him and are, are <laughs> war, war, warned accordingly. <laughs> so, um, so for those of us who are aware of him, this is not a major surprise uh, to see him coming out with with those opinions. But look, in terms of Brexit, um, we have slightly moved on to the situation where Brexit is happening. Certainly, against my strong desires to the contrary, we're in a situation now of of trying to to make this work as best we can. And I suppose that the starting point is really just to stress how difficult and challenging Brexit is for the UK as a whole, for, for sure, in terms of the, the future of the economy. But it is incredibly difficult and challenging for Northern Ireland. Uh, our difficulty is, 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 in essence, a fault line that runs through Northern Ireland. We're still a divided society internally, but also a contested space in the sense that there are competing aspirations for Northern Ireland's status, whether we're part of the UK or part of United Ireland. And the Good Friday Agreement was, was put in place to try to manage all of this wouldn't have happened if the UK and Ireland were, were not both part of the European Union at the same time. And what it essentially does is allows a sense that it de-dramatises the stark choices that would otherwise be the case for Northern Ireland, in the sense that people can live their lives freely both east-west and north-south on, on the island. Brexit, particularly a hard Brexit, requires some line to be drawn on a map somewhere. And wherever you draw that line, uh, that creates a real sense of, of tension. The assumption was that you, you, you could never draw that line across the island of Ireland because that's the land boundary um, with tens of thousands of, da- of daily daily movements, um, a lot of small businesses, uh, small traders. So by default, we end up with a situation uh, where it's been managed now down the RUC and hence the controversy around the internal market bill and before that, the, the creation of the protocol. The difficulty is there's no answer to this conundrum. It's about doing the least worst and uh, the, the backstop and then literally the, literally the protocol were the, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, outworkings of that. The protocol is essentially, therefore, not the uh, imposition of the European Union. It is the logical conclusion of the choices made by the UK, first to Brexit and then to go for a hard Brexit with the... Uh, ongoing need to protect the Good Friday Agreement. Um, so th- th- this is the result of choices made by the UK, not uh, some outsider. Well, we'll be talking more about kind of Brexit in Northern Ireland later. But I mean, I suppose mm-hmm. one encouraging thing seems to be that the Alliance Party more than doubled its mm-hmm. vote share in 2019 on a platform of kind of breaking away from what it called orange and green politics. The general narrative about politics really across the world is that it's becoming more and more polarised. Do you think that your growth suggests, at least in Northern Ireland, that there's a kind of countervailing trend? Well, it is a very, a very sort of mixed and fluid situation. And we have seen, particularly in recent years, more and more, more, and more people moving away from the traditional labels or the notion of what people refer to as the, uh, the two communities, where basically it was assumed that everyone who was um, born a Protestant was also... Um, a unionist and British and someone who was born a Catholic was Irish and a nationalist. We've much more of a fluid situation with people with mixed and multiple identities and also a lot of people have now come to live in Northern Ireland as well and brought a lot more diversity. This is, this is probably truest amongst um, young people. Against that, we have a situation where Northern Ireland probably is more unstable and where the future is more uh, uncertain and fluid than at any time in, in its previous 100 years. I mean, uh, we're coming up to the 100 anniversary of Northern Ireland next, next year. But while the violence is certainly much more marginal than, than it was at the height of the, 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 the troubles, 
few incidents occurring, but high impact whenever they do occur. The risks of, of polarisation on the back of Brexit are, are extreme. and We, we cannot, cannot be complacent uh, around that. In the sense that I mean, we, we're not a party that takes a position on the constitutional question, we, we try to span that divide, but that question was largely parked post the Good Friday Agreement, and no one was really agitating or pushing for change since 2016. That's very much, very much back on the table. So you have two, two competing trends, one where people are um, thinking about their identity in, in different ways, and including people who are, shall we say, from a more unionist background, but who value their European uh, identity, maybe thinking a little bit more creatively about their future. Against that, you have the, the logic and outworking of, of Brexit on what is still a divided society. Well, later, as the fallout continues to the government's changes to the withdrawal agreement, uh, we'll talk more with Stephen about how it could affect Northern Ireland. Plus, we'll discuss the calamitous string of outsourcing contracts the government has awarded during the pandemic to companies that barely exist. But first, we should talk about Keir Starmer's speech at the virtual Labour conference. Uh, Ian, Starmer said that Labour, I mean, not Labour specifically, but any any party that loses an election deserves to lose it. Um, And he put patriotism at the centre of his argument on his Facebook videos. In fact, there's even a Union Jack in the background. What sort of progressive patriotism is he setting out here? How how fleshed out is it? And and who's he trying to reach? It's not that fleshed out. Um, He... He, although he summarised, I thought quite elegantly, as you know, the kind of country that you want to grow up in and the kind of country you want to grow old in. And I thought, you know, that is pretty good stuff. It, it works quite well. It's wrapped up in sort of quite classic progressive patriotism sort of stuff around, you know, this is somewhere where we should have decent social care, where there should be sort of you know racial equality, and we should have reduced uh, sort of um, inequality uh, on an economic sense. He did it. I thought pretty well. Like, I mean, you sort of you signed up to it. It was it. The fact that it should be considered in any way remarkable seemed to me a, a bit disarming because it was just the kind of thing that an opposition leader says, you know, they want to run the country, that you would sort of expect that it is a country that they fundamentally like in the first place. And that, that was the general message that he was giving across. Well, uh, I mean, some people on the left cried foul, as they did when even Rebecca Long-Bailey, the candidate of the left, talked about patriotism in one article uh, during the leadership race. Why is it so anathema to a large part of the left? And it has to be said, you know, a constituency of Remainers, you know, I suppose what you'd call the, the Britain is shit Remainers, that there's something just, there's something so distasteful about the word patriotism or saying anything about Britain that they, it's rejected wholesale. Yeah, yeah. And not just that, I would say lots of liberals as well, and lots of sort of internationally minded people who don't feel it. But the thing is, it's all right not to feel it. Like no one's going to force you to, to have this thing. You know, the moment that someone forces you to march out and start, you know, singing to the flag or whatever, yeah, that would be fucking dreadful. But the fact that other people do feel it, and the, the truth is, in most countries, most of the time, most people feel it, and most people want to hear it. They want to, they want to be proud of their country. They want to love their country. Makes it a core part of people's identity. It makes it a core part of the way that people think about politics. They tend to channel that sense of identity into politics. And so for most of these cases, I just sort of think, well, this is just, it doesn't matter. I mean, you don't, no one's making you think it, but don't for a second think that you live in a world where this is not part of how people talk about politics. Because the second you do, you just vacate the field of battle. And there are so many people who have a much more pernicious idea of what um, love of country entails. In other words, nationalists as opposed to patriots who will come in and they will take that position. 
So whether you like it or not, you do have to, to, to recognize that politics is involved in those discussions. And to the extent that people like us are not involved in the discussions is the extent to which the other side just gets to have a monopoly over it. Briefly, Starmer also declared an end to leave versus remain, which is, which is, I mean, on the on the one hand, okay, yes, well, Brexit is happening. Obviously, he's talking to sort of estranged Labour voters, uh, who, some of whom, you know, allegedly consider him King Remainer. But do you think he's also kind of talking to the party itself, which, you know, it's tore itself to shreds over Brexit, right, even within Corbyn's inner circle. It just seems so horrible. So it seemed like he's not just addressing leavers, but perhaps also saying to Labour, you know, Merry Christmas war is over. Yeah, absolutely. So look, what, what he wants to do is he wants to take the whole Brexit debate, which is in the culture war area where he's fucked, and he wants to shift it into the competence area where he actually gets very good polling, where he does very well, where he can launch very persuasive attacks on the prime minister, that uh, the undercurrent of which is accepted by most of, of the country. Most people do think actually, you know, prime minister is making a hash of COVID. It's quite easy to stretch that into Brexit. And that tactic will work, I think, very well in the coming months if there's no deal. Where Starmer's going to have an issue, and where sort of all of us really are going to have an issue, is if there is a deal, which, which I still think, and I'm being optimistic, but I still think is the most likely outcome. Because then you've got to say, okay, so what the fuck does he do then? You know, does Labour vote to support that deal in the Commons? Then on the one hand, if you vote to support it, you're saying that this is a good deal, when it just manifestly is not, even its starting terms, are so modest, they're so threadbare, that this is clearly a terrible deal to do with your largest uh, trading partner. And in terms of the more sort of, you know, day-to-day real politic of it, it loses you the ability as Labour to then attack the government for the consequences of that deal in, in the years to come. But if he doesn't support the deal, he is then walking into the, 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 the narrative that the Tories want to set of this is a man that opposes Brexit, of dragging it back into the culture war. And also, in some ways, he doesn't actually achieve anything because even logically, I mean, obviously you can't stop it, but logically, what is your position for voting against the deal when there is a set timetable at the end of the year? The consequence of that would be no deal and a deal remains better than no deal. So his, his tactic works very well right now and it will work especially well under no deal. If there is a deal, he is going to have to ultimately come up with a position beyond uh, the competency argument and that position will not be an easy one to reach. Stephen, what do you make of uh, of Keir Starmer so far? He's had a, he's had a few months. Obviously, not your guy, but just as a politics watcher. Well, I, I, I think he first of all, I think probably Labour would, would abstain in, in those circumstances that that, that are set out, and um, probably split the difference. That has happened on, on quite a few votes uh, uh, recently. There is a, a a blunt edge to some of the the criticism. There's a lot of things that the government is doing at present that is. Um, extreme uh, outrageous but it's becoming almost normalized because the the debate is happening on the territory and set by by, by by the government I mean even um, on, on on Monday where we were discussing the internal market bill Theresa May who we were all very heavily critical of of her approach to brexit is now the, the voice of reason um, uh, so that shows that the whole the whole just dial is just moves several several notches notches to the right my fear about Keir Starmer and Labour is that obviously they're, they're, they're focusing on getting into, into office at the next election. So they're offering an argument of competence, but at the same time accepting the Boris's English nationalist populist Britain as the, 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 the default. Now, that may well be the, the, the right and responsible thing to do, but it is at the, at the cost of conceding uh, a sharper edge in terms of trying to challenge the, the wider direction of travel uh, of, of, of the UK. 
and I suppose that's what where perhaps some of the other opposition parties can can play a um, a, a stronger a stronger role. Uh, the other problem which both he and Boris Johnson need to wrestle with is the the future of the UK itself. And obviously I'll talk a bit about Northern Ireland, but the issue of, of Scotland and what happens there is is is, uh, is is looming. And that's going to be also a huge dilemma for him as to how he positions himself around the push for a further referendum in Scotland. Um, you have to work on this, the assumption that the Scottish National Party will get a mandate for that uh, next May. Um, at present, they are constructing a narrative in the House of Commons that the government have no concern or interest in the well-being of Scotland, and um, the Tories seem perfectly happy to enable that argument. Um, and those are probably the, 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 that's the sharpest fault line at present on the floor of the Commons. And um, but again, that will pose a challenge for, for Labour to how they, they position themselves, or what could become very quickly a very polarised support for the union versus independence with with the middle ground um, eroding underneath. Uh, Rod, Starmer also emphasised, uh, as, as Steve just mentioned, your competence, credibility. Is this all part of the same message, which is basically, hello, <laughs> I am Sir Keir, not Corbyn? Um, yes, it is. I mean, I, I think uh, Starmer's making some progress in terms of getting his individual personality across to the public. But what he hasn't yet done, and the polls seem to suggest this, is to increase the public's confidence in the Labour Party, because you still have one in four people, I think, saying that they don't trust the Labour Party. So now that they have some idea of who Keir Starmer is, and as I always say, you should never overestimate um, how much attention ordinary people pay to politics in this country, and particularly in a in a situation where the government has so many channels of communication, so many press conferences, Johnson standing up and talking about lockdown regulations, really very little opportunity for the opposition to make its mark, not least because at the moment, of course, we have no elections, something which is often forgotten, I think, at the moment, but there's none of the usual democratic turnover of by-elections and there wasn't uh, London mayoral elections or anything like that. That doesn't happen and that means that the space the opposition has to reach out to the public is very limited. That's why I'm pleased that Starmer announced, I think a week or two ago, that he was going to do press conferences himself so they have a be- people have a better idea of who he is and what he's saying. Well, he said the next manifesto won't sound like anything you've heard before. It will feel like the future arriving, which is pretty exciting. Um, But Lisa Nandy the previous day said that an increased top tax rate and public ownership, both uh, policies which polled very well, um, are less likely. Do you worry that they might be throwing out the baby with the bathwater, that those kind of precious policies, which really stood on on broadly retaining, are going to sort of go out as well? No, I don't worry about that. I think it's impossible to say what state the public finances are going to be in by the time of the next general election or by the time this government, the Conservative government, folds, whichever comes first, because things are changing so fast. It is just not at all clear what help different sectors will need, uh, how many people will be out of work, how deep the recession will be. Rishi Sunak himself keeps postponing his budget announcements because he has doesn't have a clue either. So it would be really foolish to start trying to focus people's attention on policy at this point when Starmer's big challenge is still to actually make people in the wider country aware that the Labour Party has changed and he is leading it.
This week, Parliament has been debating Boris Johnson's outlaw Brexit deal. Tory rebels won the concession of a sign-off on any powers the government gains via the infamous Internal Market Bill. I'm not a lawyer, but apparently it's okay to break international law as long as you vote to do it first. <laughs> Stephen, you talked here about the kind of the, the, the danger uh, to the Good Friday Agreement. You moved two amendments to the bill, one requiring the minister's powers are consistent with the agreement, one obliging UK ministers to use their best endeavours to get away from goods for Northern Ireland to the rest of Britain. How did you fare with those amendments? On the first one, we um, did get that one pushed to a vote, so we, we lost by 90, which was basically everyone uh, apart from the Conservatives and DEP supporting it. So that was um, positive in that sense anyway. Um, obviously, it's, it's a loss is a loss. And we're now moving to report stage uh, next week, so there, there will be other opportunities to have those discussions. And the House of Lords will also have the opportunity, uh, and that, that may well be the, the most critical intervention in terms of the uh, the bill itself. The Second Amendment was, was more of a technical one, but it largely just makes the point that the, there are outstanding issues uh, to be resolved in, uh, through the Joint Committee, um, but it's better to work inside the process uh, and build up trust and good faith and seek mitigations on that basis rather than trying to circumvent it. The approach of trying to, uh, of threatening to breach international law or not follow through with the withdrawal agreement seems to be totally self-defeating in terms of trying to build trust uh, and, and say, if the European Union give the UK uh, a little bit of leeway, uh, then we're not going to abuse it. Uh, I think we're, we're sort, of, sort of signaling we can't be trusted in that respect. It also has wider implications for the future relationship deal. And while I still concur that some sort of superficial deal will be done before the end of the year, this does make it that much more difficult to do. And I suppose the um, the fundamental dead end, which um, some Brexiteers really haven't processed, is the impact of this on a US free trade deal. The, the view of some Brexiteers was um, we're going to replace our relationship with the European Union for a, a robust Atlanticist approach with the United States. Um, I'm up for doing a deal with the USA, provided it's on decent terms, no chlorinated chicken, etc. But there, shall we say, threats to, to breach international law will be a dead end because regardless of who is the president, and obviously Joe Biden's quite quite strongly uh, to, 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 to warn, um, Congress will be still be controlled by the Democrats and Speaker Pelosi has been very clear uh, that no trade deal will be ratified uh, by Congress if, in their view, it breaches the Good Friday Agreement. So you sort of wonder where all this ends because they are threatened to breach international law, but it, 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 there is no good pathway out of this for the UK. I mean, it, it may seem tactically uh, smart from Dominic Cummings, but, but strategically, uh, it doesn't make any sense. Well, you mentioned, you know, you talked about the Good Friday Agreement, uh, obviously it's essential for peace and being sort of threatened uh, at the moment. But I think maybe it's hard for people outside Northern Ireland to understand sort of w- exactly what those ramifications are. Is are there? Is it more that it sort of creates uncertainty and division and that that could manifest itself in myriad ways? Like, what, what are your concerns? Essentially, for 70 years of Northern Ireland's history, it was that contested state. People did not accept the legitimacy the, 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 the of what happened in the 1920s. The Good Friday Agreement comes along in 1998. In essence, there is a, a grand bargain. So, so for the first time, you have the Irish government and Northern Irish nationalists 
accepting Northern Ireland as an entity, albeit with the the, the, the clear pathway to change it in due course if they have a, if they have a majority. In exchange, there was a, a, an understanding of strong north south links on the island. So people, so the the, the impact of different state jurisdictions was withering away in, in practical terms. The problem, therefore, with um, a hard Brexit is that it requires a line to be drawn on a map. So pragmatically, we're going for a dotted line down the Irish Sea, which is easier to manage. If that commitment is, is jeopardised, then that line is potentially pushed back onto the island of Ireland, where, where the European Union would argue that they need to protect the integrity of their single market and customs union. And in doing so, then that risks the issue of some degree of, of a border, an economic border on the island. That then basically has political, emotional, psychological ramifications. It doesn't necessarily lead to, to violence, though obviously there are people who are engaged in violence at present who may seek to exploit that situation. So that's that's in essence what people are concerned about. It's unpicking uh, something that has, has largely held together for the past 20 years. Ross, Theresa May, formerly a contestant for Worst PM Ever, um, secured a rare bit of good press by calling the government's actions reckless, irresponsible and a threat to the union. Um, setting aside all the regrettable things she actually did in office, uh, were you impressed by her intervention and do you think it, it, it mattered? Traditionally, the, the sort of the XPM intervention, particularly if it's someone of the same party, does matter. Yeah, sure. It was impressive on its own terms. Uh, I think that May drove the party and allowed the Conservative Party to be driven by the ERG and by its most extreme right wingers. And that was the terrible thing that she did. And she fudged over that. And she talked about Brexit means Brexit, uh, which means nothing, uh, and allowed them to essentially define whatever they wanted Brexit to be, not on her terms, but on their terms. So I think for her to come back now and say that, yes, it's legitimate criticism, absolutely it is. But but she was the one who allowed this to, to happen. I think it does... Um, it, it does matter the uh, decision to to uh, force a sign off on putting the bill through because it matters for the optics as far as the EU is concerned as well because we have an incompetent PM that much is clear to the rest of the EU who has extremely illiberal instincts but at least this has shown that he is to some extent, to a limited extent, being constrained by Parliament, that they are still doing a little bit to stand up to him. And that is important. It shows he doesn't have absolute control of the Commons, despite his big majority. He can't do completely what he wants. And that's a really good thing. That's a good development. It's not much, but it's all we've got right now. But I should take down my You Go Girl meme of Theresa May from uh, from Twitter. <laughs> yes, you should, Dorian. <laughs> I knew I got I got so carried away. Um, we stand a true queen, um, Ian. When we first talked about the internal market bill, you know that there was there was that sort of question of like, is this a, is this a determination for no deal? Is is this an attempt to threaten the EU and make them sort of cave in? Well, you know, we've had a couple of weeks now. Um, so, are there any? What signs are there? Uh, from the EU, if that was indeed the intention. No, it certainly won't make them cave in. And and in fact, it makes a deal much less likely. Because, look, still, the pathway to a deal is basically, will Johnson give in on state aid? And if he does give in on state aid, pretty much all the other stuff, fisheries and environment, and it all sort of falls into... You you can see landing zones all over the place. You've got to have the state aid in place. What's changed a bit is that bill 
Because that bill potentially allows UK ministers to unilaterally change the designation of at-risk items going from GB into NI. So, you know, you're looking at an item that goes in <clears throat> from Great Britain into Northern Ireland, and, and the assessment was, it was going to be worked out by the, by the Joint Council, you know, the JIC, was how do we assess whether a good is at risk of going into the Republic um, from Northern Ireland and therefore into the EU single market? Um, and what, is the, you know, what are the mechanisms we're going to use for differentiating them? Now, if that is left as, as some sort of unilateral UK power, what it translates as is you're asking the EU to just accept a big gaping hole in its trading border. And that, that is what that honestly translates to. And there just isn't a situation in which the EU will tolerate that. So the counter to people like me who still stay quite optimistic about the, the deal is, you know, some really quite senior sort of EU legal figures um, saying at the moment, look, that bill right now as it currently stands makes, makes a deal impossible. And something in it needs to change. Now, that could be... And, and that, there are wriggle rooms around that. So you could get a situation. I mean, we haven't heard much from the Joint Council about how they're working this stuff out. But if they do come out, you know, in the next month, because the bill looks like it's going to be delayed, they're going to stop it going to the Lords for a while and go, well, look, this is the mechanism. You could see a way that the, the two sides can kind of back down by going, well, look, the, the, the bill, you know, whether it goes through or not, it's just not, it doesn't really matter anymore because we've got, you know, we, we know the system, we've got it in place. But actually, ultimately, the internal market bill, not, I mean, not only doesn't make the EU back down, but actually makes a deal much, much harder to get because it is such an egregious piece of legislation, not just in the powers that it gives the UK, but in the quite foundational areas that those powers can be used. Stephen, I want to ask one more question about Northern Ireland before we move on. The, the last Northern Ireland Secretary, Julian Smith, uh, helped restore the Stormont Executive mm. uh, and we had a Northern Irish politician on here speaking quite kindly about him. The success of Brandon Lewis made the notorious, very specific and limited speech to Parliament. Karen Bradley was <laughs> notoriously ill-prepared. What makes a good Northern Ireland Secretary? Well, the, the paradox, of course, is that Julian Smith was probably the uh, the best one we've, we've had since Momodum, so for over a 20-year period. But his time in office was um, literally about... Uh, six months um, <laughs> being, 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 being successful and, 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 and uh, longevity are not necessarily uh, mutually uh, quality not quantity yeah. indeed so he, 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 he packed a lot, a lot in over a short period of time I would say first of all if you go back to the times of um, people like Peter Brook and Paddy Mayhew both of whom were, were, were conservatives um, in the early 90s whenever the peace process was being formulated yeah. the North Irish Secretary of State was a figure that was trying to carve out a, a neutral role they were not coming across as overt advocates for the union they saw their role as being much more of an honest broker and also standing up for Northern Ireland in, in cabinet we're now probably 180 degrees from that in the sense that the current government and the this has been the case for overtly since 2010, have been championing one particular perspective on the future of Northern Ireland. And they see their role as being a, an emissary of the, the overall government position rather than necessarily the, the other direction of travel. Um, some have had various political crises to try to manage with various degrees of, of success. 
you've had obviously people like Karen Bradley who didn't um, really push much of an agenda when it, she, her role was to keep Northern Ireland quiet at the time of, of Brexit uh, breaking out. Before that, you had Villiers who had broken the Stormer House Agreement but who basically had very, very little conception of the impact of Brexit on Northern Ireland. Um, she, was, she was arguing for a, a position of Brexit while she was Secretary of State which was going to essentially undermine all that had been achieved uh, over the past 20 years. So um, it's been a, certainly a, a mixed bag in that, res- in that respect. <laughs> now, have you ever signed a bad contract and found you couldn't get out of it? <laughs> Maybe you spent £346 million pounds of public money on PPE. You might be entitled to compensation. <laughs> Since 2010... Uh, the awarding of government contracts to private firms has shot up and made household names, uh, although usually for the wrong reasons, out of companies like G4S, Carillion and Serco. Serco is the latest outsourcing giant under fire for its failed handling of the COVID test and trace scheme. Despite that, they've just been awarded a further £45 million to develop new testing sites. Ros, in theory, the government is supposed to open contracts up for bidding. Um, that didn't happen here. Is the government ever justified in rushing these contracts through, given the, the COVID situation, because they can argue that, you know, delay would be worse. Yeah, absolutely it is. In the case of this, lots of things have changed in government as a result of COVID, and this is one of them. What is not justified is the lack of transparency that accompanied those decisions. So normally when you get... Um, a decision like this made to outsource, you get a contract award notice, and that's published within 30 days of the contract being awarded. Uh, Those weren't published. Some of them still weren't published three months after they awarded. It's not clear, for example, basic stuff like whether these companies are being paid by their results, what the key performance indicators are. That basically means if they fail, how badly do they have to fail to go not get their money or to be kicked off the contract? Um, These things are all still very obscure. Did the uh, government do a make versus buy decision, which is which is the kind of best practice to see whether outsourcing is the best thing to do in a particular circumstances. Is it best to, to make it yourself to basically do it through the existing public institutions or is it better to outsource it? Um, it, it seems that they didn't. And that is the real the real failure here that we don't really know what went on, not just that it happened fast. That's fine. We understand. But we don't know what happened. Uh, and the government awarded over £100 million to a firm that says it specialises in PPE, despite only being incorporated a month before. Um, why is it so easy for companies to spring up and get these huge contracts? And could we have a go? <laughs> well, you could do if you if you have previously worked for Michael Gove, for example. Because, I mean, let's, let's take an example of a company that does that has been awarded a large public contract as a result of COVID, which is called Public First. Uh, this is somewhat something of an irony, This, this the title of this company, but let's not go there. Anyway, so this is run by two people who used to work for Gove. One of them is Rachel Wolfe. Rachel Wolfe was only 25 when she was given a massive half a million pound contract by Michael Gove when he was education, in education to um, big up and, and, and explain how wonderful his uh, free school scheme was. She was only 25 at that time because she'd worked for him and then she went off and set off her uh, set up her own company and he gave her that work. Nice, nice work if you can get it. And now again, Public First is back in the mix helping with COVID. It, it really is a revolving door between these companies that are very so happy to do this kind of work for the government. And it frankly, it stinks a bit. Ian, on the government website, it's referred to as NHS Test and Trace, despite it being handled by Serco. 
Um, do you think people would be more outraged by this if they understood exactly who was doing what? I don't know about that. I think ultimately, the sort of the, one of the reasons the governments are attracted to doing this a lot of the time, not in all these individual cases, um, is, um, is because they think that they can sort of offshore some of the blame sometimes when things go wrong. But the truth is, it doesn't really happen because the public still expect the you know the government to be responsible for the project, and so when the failure is there, it's still treated as a government failure. So I don't know if the name Serco would really make that much difference. And in fact, in a way, it sort of tends to smudge the blame because it goes on to some sort of name that a lot of people just haven't heard of. I mean, Labour often has the problem of, Labour seems to be seen as, they're always seen as the party that spends too much. And that's obviously certainly a Tory attack line against them. Does the Tories' expenditure of taxpayer money on these contracts sort of give Labour an opening to look more responsible on public spending, not by promising cuts, but just not by not throwing money at 25-year-olds who used to work for Michael Gove. The thing is that Labour's record is, is having done broadly the same thing because it fell in with that same idea of private companies are more efficient than the state and they'll just be able to do things more efficiently. The, the majority of the time, um, they're really not in the areas that we look at, right? So, I mean, this goes back to like that discussion we had last week about, you know, is it market or state, market or state, and a bunch of people were just saying it's always the market. But in fact, in a lot of areas... Now you take like the disaster, the various disasters in criminal justice policy with privatizations and especially in probation, where you're looking at these areas and there really is no profit motive on, on any sort of legitimate sense to, to doing this stuff. You want to take like probation is a fucking nightmare. It's really hard to get people to not reoffend when they have multiple mental health problems, when their instinctive way of dealing with problems is, is often violence or aggression, when they have very, very low literacy rates. Um, alcoholism, you know, in distant parts of the country, like trying to create a profit motive there for 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 a failure a failure to reoffend, a beggar pardon for for a lack of reoffending, is really very difficult indeed, and it constantly fails. So, Labour, to be honest, in its history, has mostly made the same mistakes. Question is, will it now, as part of that sort of you know learning the good bits of Corbynism as well as as well as the worst bits, start to reappraise that assessment of how private sector providers can 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 work on public services? Uh, Stephen, how much power do the devolved nations have uh, in deciding which these government contracts are, are carried out? Do they just have to sort of, you know, sort of take take what they're given by uh, by the government? Well, in theory, they, they have complete autonomy over these decisions as health uh, policy is devolved to, to all three. In practical terms, they uh, there is advantages in being part of a wider um scaling up of ordering uh, and the economies of scale that, that come from that. There have been tensions over the, the, the how that's been distributed across the four nations of the UK, whenever that has been ha, has been the case. But yeah, essentially, yeah, it is uh, something where, in theory, we can go, go it alone. There was some controversy um, whenever the um, North Ireland finance minister tried to do a deal with China separately, um, uh, which didn't materialise in the end. So particularly around April, uh, March, April, whenever um, things were, were really acute, there were quite a number of mistakes made in terms of PPE uh, procurement. But obviously, it's, it's still an ongoing uh, issue. Finally, it's time for Roz's COVID corner. We would make a jingle, but, but all, the, all the options sound too morbid. God, uh, that's awful, Dorothy. That, that's just—it's a really lonely place, Ross's COVID corner. You know, you're so, <laughs> socially distanced. No, I mean, corner. everyone stands oh, very far away. Fumigated, yeah. <laughs>
on the uh, LSE COVID blog, uh, Simeon Jankov has outlined what France and Germany are doing to recover from COVID. What are the main economic measures and are there things that Britain could or should emulate? There are an awful lot of them. These are huge, huge packages. I mean, if you ask generally people what what British Sunaks are done, people will say, well, there's furlough and there's ETAC to help out. But in France and Germany, there are a huge number of very targeted measures. Um, Germany, for example, has had a temporary VAT cut. There's been in both countries a big boost to the green technology, especially electric cars and hydrogen cars, which may incidentally fall foul of EU state aid. Um, rules, but let's not go there at the moment because that's all quite complicated. <laughs> There's, you know, also state guarantee on corporate loans, which is uh, to help com- avoid companies going bust. And then there's really, really targeted things like in Germany, every kid you've got, you get 300 euros. Um, if you're a single parent, you get an extra allowance in recognition of the fact that being forced to stay at home has made your life so much more difficult. Um, all sorts of all sorts of stuff going on there. I mean, is this stuff that you would expect, you know, the Britain to learn from and just think, oh, you know, that, that's that's a good idea. Maybe we should, you know, do more to, I know, protect workers or. Is, I mean, is there any reason why they wouldn't? No, 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 there isn't really any reason why they wouldn't. Um, I think Rishi Sunak has basically been kicking the ball forward for a while and would like to announce a lot more and a lot more targeted measures, but isn't at the moment because of the state of uncertainty that we're in at the moment and the way that, you know, it may well be that pubs and restaurants have to close in a couple of weeks. That's going to require a very different response to the one we have at the moment where there's merely a 10pm curfew. So it's very difficult to plan. And um, I, I would say the UK's overall response has been quite strong but minimal and a little bit belated. It certainly isn't as comprehensive as France and Germany have managed to do, to to achieve. As Simeon Jankov points out that neither country uh, has a contingency plan or has proposed one in case the economy doesn't bounce back. Um, but I mean, is that just is that just the nature of the beast that because things keep changing that 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 almost, you know, every package you propose, implicit in that is that there's going to have to be another package in a few months responding to all the other all the things that have happened. Yeah, and I think France in particular may have to do quite a lot to boost demand, uh, if especially if they have to lock down again something perhaps like eat out to help out but probably more more a little bit more subtle there will there will have to be a lot more but it it is simply very very difficult to say where that is going to be at the moment that said you know there there are some very good long-term measures here i mean germany for example has been thinking way in advance has actually made it easier given that so it's i think 15 billion euros on encouraging companies to enable people to work remotely more easily which makes total sense in the in the current circumstances and also, they've been uh, very good on grants and encouragement for people to reskill. Because what I see at the moment is quite a few people in on furlough in jobs that may not survive the next few months or the next year. And they're kind of hanging on and they're thinking, should I retrain or should I stick now because I'm with furlough and I haven't yet been made redundant? And they don't know what to do. And to say, look, now is if you're going to go out and be retrained, now is the time. That's a really positive thing to do. And it makes people feel more positive and certain about their future. There we go. Ros's COVID corner is a very, very positive place. <laughs> I do my very, best. <laughs> very, very, up, very uplifting. 
Hello, it's Andrew Harrison, the producer here. If you like Romaniacs, you will love The Bunker. Every Wednesday, the Romaniacs regulars plus new guests get together for a no-holds-barred political roundtable about anything and everything except Brexit. What we are definitely living through is a golden age of incompetence. We don't talk about the parts of the data pipeline that are the cause of misleading arguments. On Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays and Fridays, there's The Bunker Daily with one-to-ones and explainers on everything from the economy to the arts, culture, and even food. Italians are extravagant about food, but never wasteful. That's what I'm like. I'm a genius. That's what the J stands for, Donald J. Trump. That's The Bunker, with all your favourites from Romaniacs and more. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. And now, before we go, it's time for To the Barricades, where each week we pick a cause for Romaniacs listeners to rally behind. Uh, Stephen Farry, uh, do you have a cause that you'd like to promote? Well, well it, it probably is a little bit of a stretch, uh, given that uh, they are probably capable of uh, arguing their case themselves. But we have the, the looming presidential election, and this week we uh, we had the very sad passing of um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, the Supreme Court um, justice. And we have the the, the uh, probably the, the bizarre situation now of a vote on that uh, either side of the presidential election uh, over a very short uh, period, but just brings home sort of how skewed and, and warped uh, the the U.S. democratic process is, and a lot of the institutionalized biases and obstacles uh, that are in place, and almost at the the fate of judicial decision making over the next twenty thirty years. Was, was almost dependent upon when uh, an old um, champion uh, um, uh, passed away um, in terms of timing. And uh, it just seems that so much is at stake based upon those almost random random issues. But again, this then feeds into issues around how fair the election is going to be, how people are going to respond to it down the line. There's going to be legal challenges to to, to the election with, with so much at stake. So it's, it's probably not one where we, we go to the barricades and such, but I think it's certainly one to factor in in terms of um, liberal democratic rule of law, good governance norms around the world. Absolutely. Well, we've reached the end of the show. So thanks to Ros Taylor. Thank you. Ian Dunt. Thank you very much. And our guest, Stephen Farry. Nice to join us. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for joining us. If you're listening as a patron, don't forget our Bunker vs. Romaniacs live stream tonight at 8pm. If you're listening on Friday, you've missed out this time, but if you sign up to back us, you can get a recording of the Zoom stream. Plus, you'll get Romaniacs a day early, and we'll read your name out on the podcast. Now it's time for our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a list of our latest backers. Hello and thanks for your support to Leela Toff, Laura Welpton and Chris Cook. Hello and thank you from me to Rachel McRae, Jim Walker and Arthur. Finally, thank you to Martin Hickman, Matthew and Steve Noble. Take care, hang tight, we'll see you next time. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ian Dunt and Ross Taylor. Audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. And Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.